This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer, and this week, it's all about Ukraine. Just as we were filming the volunteers making this checkpoint, one of so many uh, fortifications now going up around Dnipro, the air raid siren started to wail again, and uh, the volunteers after this morning's missile strike. She tells me he was right by the building. Thank God he's alive. Yes, it is. It is getting much more brutal. I think it began with this idea they would just do some surgical attacks in the A tense situation now. We can hear shelling, explosions. Has Putin badly miscalculated the Russian invasion? Does the Russian autocrat risk provoking popular domestic discontent or even a palace coup. The stakes are high. So let's turn to one of Britain's most seasoned observers of Russia, Mary Dejeski. Mary is a columnist with The Independent and a former correspondent in both Moscow and Washington. Mary, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you. Now, contrary to Western intelligence, you, like other Russian experts, you didn't think that Putin would invade Ukraine beyond Donbass in the east and, of course, the Crimean Peninsula, which he took in 2014. These are predominantly ethnic Russian areas. So how do you account for Putin's decision? Well, I find it very, very difficult to account for Putin's decision because it seems to me that he's embarked on an extraordinarily risky enterprise. Um, There were so many warnings that Ukrainians would fight, that it would be practically impossible to occupy the whole of Ukraine. So it seems a very, very strange decision, given that um, it looked so relatively simple um, that if Russia was going to cross the border, that it would go into into the Donbass, secure the Donbass, and he'd almost been given a green light for it by President Biden, who'd said, well, you know, that would do, if he just did a sort of little incursion, then that would put the West in a difficult position. So it's it's very strange to me. The only explanation I can possibly give is that Putin sees Ukraine not primarily as Ukraine, but as an advanced platform for NATO and the West in what he might see as a potential raid or um, threat to Russia. And when you look at this from the West, of course, it looks completely absurd. But when you read and listen to the sort of things that Putin has been saying, especially over the last year, then he really does seem to believe that the security and even the future of Russia is at risk from a Western threat. Two things here. There's the invasion, which just appeared so risky and so contrary in almost every way to both Russia's and Putin's own interests. I get that. But, I mean, given what we know now, uh, this has been more than a week into the incursion, um, could Russia really try to occupy Ukraine well, the interesting thing is that in the in what amounted to the declaration of war, um, Putin's formal s- statement, um, 
he says that the aim is not to occupy Ukraine. He also says that the aim is not to change its borders. He says that the that, that there are these twin aims. One of them is demilitarization, and the other is this um, rather strange concept applied to today's Ukraine, which he talked about denazification. Yes, this denazification, I mean, obviously there's a link there with um, fascists and Nazis in Ukraine that goes back to World War II, but they're surely marginalised figures, Mary. Well, yes, I mean, that's, that's, I think, the general consensus, and it's certainly my observation when I've been to Ukraine. I've been to Ukraine frequently um, over the last 10 years, and yes, there, there are bands um, who draw, as it were, their, whose roots date back to the 1930s and the Nazi occupation of Ukraine. But they are on the fringe. Russia is being presented, for some reason, with a view of Ukraine that the whole of the country, um, east of the pro-Russia bits, is basically... Um, influenced at least, if not governed, by a Nazi tendency. And this is particularly absurd because President Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, campaigned and elected open, openly saying that he was Jewish and of Jewish heritage. He has one of the most diverse and youngest governments that, 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 that Ukraine has had. The idea that he owes anything or is in hoc to anything of a Nazi tendency is just completely crazy. And yet it somehow fits into a, a, a very dated um, view of certain aspects of Ukraine as seen from Russia. And it seems that President Putin and the circle around him latched onto this as something that is um, productive in propaganda terms and for justifying the armed intervention. And this helps explain why so many people believe that Putin this time, unlike in Crimea and Donbass in 2014-15, this time he's mis miscalculated. But, of course, I suppose that really depends in large part on whether he gets bogged down in occupation beyond Donbass. What about the Ukrainian resistance? I mean, I mean, have you, for example, have you, have you been surprised about the Ukrainian resistance that it's been stronger than expected? No, I haven't been. Uh, I haven't been at all surprised by the by the strength of the Ukrainian um, resistance. Um, in part, I think because, as I said, I've been to Ukraine quite frequently over the last few years, and what you get the very um, you get a very strong sense of um, new nationhood, large degree of patriotism, um, very. How shall I say? Um, there is, a, a, as it were, a growing national idea in Ukraine, which unfortunately, and as Putin has said from time to time, leads to it defining itself against Russia, as seeing Russia as the enemy. And this is, you know, this is a very unfortunate development. But the the actual sense of nationhood that you get when you're in Ukraine pride in the language, in the culture, a sense of style, um, a loyalty, not just to the idea of the country, but to you know, things like the landscape. Um, 
you get that very strongly. And Ukraine has been very successful, I think, in developing that sense of nationhood. One thing I do wonder is that I think there's been quite a lot of um, very positive spin about the Ukrainian resistance and the idea that um, it just seems to me that Russia's firepower is so much superior that the idea that there are the Russian troops are sort of bogged down forever, um, that that's maybe a bit unrealistic. And lots of people are saying, well, Russians are encountering more, more resistance than they expected and their operation is going very badly. But we don't know that because we don't know what their what their original estimates and what their original plans and pace was. So to say, well, they expected to, as it were, to be in charge of Ukraine within two days, that might not have been the plan. They might actually be going roughly to plan how it is. But um, we just don't know that. How much support do you suspect he enjoys in the Kremlin and the broader Russian public? That's very, very difficult to gauge. That's one of the most difficult things. Um, certainly, we've seen um, we've seen street protests, which um, seem to be continuing in Russia, even though they've been repressed. People have been beaten up by police. There've been um, apparently more than six thousand people arrested, which puts the scale of the um, of the demonstrations and the arrests um, really on a par with the protests that there were back in 2011, 2012 which were specifically against Putin and his return to office. Um, but these, these protests um, at street level have been particularly interesting because unlike the 2011-2012 demonstrations, they are spread right across Russia. Um, the first evening, the evening of the uh, of the invasion of Ukraine, they apparently um, spread across more than 40 cities and towns in Russia. Now, that is an enormous spread. Obviously, things have, have died down and the suppression of protest means that it'll go it'll go underground to an extent. But what's more interesting to me is that you have um, people I would. I would identify as parts of the elite who are either protesting openly or who are making known their opposition to to, to what's happened. So while you've got the, uh, the, 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 the circle immediately around Putin, who, as it were, pledged their allegiance to, to him and to the decision to recognise the two regions of the Donbass, and that was three days before the actual invasion, um, you had Putin's inner circle there, one by one, asked to give what was described as their advice on whether um, Russia should recognise those two, two regions as independent, which, looking back, obviously, is the, is the precursor to armed intervention. Now, some of, those, uh, some of the members of Putin's circle, the Security Council, looked distinctly awkward when they were asked for their opinion, um, but they all signed up to it. So what you had was a collective decision. Yes, but I remember uh, two years... Yeah, sorry, I was just going to make the point that I remember at the, in the aftermath of the Crimean incursion in 2014, uh, Stephen Cohen, someone we both knew, sadly died two years ago, but he was a distinguished historian of Russian studies at both NYU and Princeton. And he made the point to me uh, after Crimea and the Donbash interventions that Putin was actually surrounded by some people 
who thought he was too soft, that he should have gone harder. Yes. Around Putin, it is said that um, Shoigu, the defence minister, um, was actually one of the um, one of the leaders of the of, of a project for invading all Ukraine, and that he wanted, as it were, the maximum maximal option. Um, whereas there were others, obviously, who who, who, who preferred something more modest. Um, but if we go, if if we go back to um, opposition, one of the most interesting things I find about the opposition is that some of those who have made their views known publicly are, as it were, the next generation of the government and um, even Putin circle elite. They're not, they're, they're not his contemporaries, they're the next generation and the generation after that. And you're looking at, for instance, the um, adult, the, the adult daughter of Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman. You're looking at his ex-wife, who then took her, took her post in protest off Instagram rather quickly. You're looking at um, quite a few other people in who are sons and daughters of ministers and or um, people in, in, in the commercial world. You've had a few of, uh, of the so-called oligarchs come out, largely, I would say, under pressure, for instance, from, um, from Britain, because they, have been, because they have residents and they have huge interests here, um, and life has been made potentially more uncomfortable for them. Um, but it's it's the next generation of the elite who interest me because they are the people who could have real influence on what happens next. My guest is Mary Dejeski. She's from the independent newspaper in Britain and a former British correspondent in Moscow and Washington. Mary, if the military operations go badly for the Russians or if living standards start to slip as a result of these sanctions, these crippling economic sanctions that Washington has helped coordinate, surely Putin's in serious trouble. Now, in those circumstances, could he risk a palace coup? Well, I think that he would be in very serious trouble in both of those circumstances if the operation goes really badly um, and if life gets much harder for Russians, particularly new middle-class Russians. And to an extent, that seems already to be happening because some of the things that are, you could say, adhere to them um, are things that are actually starting to starting to disintegrate. So the the isolation of Russia means that their their opportunities for travel have basically been annihilated. You're looking at queues apparently at ATMs and difficulty in being able to to spend their money. You're looking at potentially high inflation, you're looking at very high interest rates, a lot of the new middle class will have mortgages, mortgage rate was doubled um, two days ago. All these things will come together to make that section of the Russian population very, very unhappy. Now, you know, how far they would be able to, to move against Putin or his his associates obviously is in doubt. But if there are people at the top, if there are people around Putin who see this degree of discontent, they I think could very well make a move. But it's very it's very difficult to see 
who that might be at the moment, partly because the Security Council signed up to the project and partly because there is just nobody. Putin has been so dominant that it's very hard to single out any one individual who might either have the ambition or um, be persuaded to take the risk of moving against Putin. Yeah, and during the last 20 years, uh, or more than 20 years now since he's been in power, either as president or prime minister, his strategic objectives have generally been realist and limited, but he might have miscalculated this time. Now, of course, all this comes as Russia is increasingly being seen as an international pariah, which might put more pressure on him um, in months to come. But let me push back here, Mary, and put this to you. Uh, Putin, indeed many Russians, they might say from their perspective, they have been treated, it's been Russia that's been treated as the outsiders, regardless of any concessions or overtures on their part. So Putin might argue, and he probably has a lot of support in the community, that he had little to lose. And in any case, Mary, Russia still has China, India, Iran, and rising African states in Moscow's corner. How would you respond to that? Mary Dujeski. All that is true. Um, and I think if we go back, which a lot of people at the moment are not very willing to do, they say, well, you know, the situation is so bad at the moment that we're not really interested in what led up to it or what caused it. Um, I think that's a bit of a mistake because, as you say, um, the way Russia was treated um, over, really, over the last 30 years since the, since, since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of communism, um, Russia feels that it was treated as a defeated power. And the expansion of NATO pretty much up to its borders, it feels, was, was done without um, or against undertakings it was given. Now, there's a huge amount of controversy about that, but the, the point is that it is Russia's perception that word was given and um, promises were betrayed. And Russia certainly has felt increasingly, particularly as NATO has come closer and closer to Russia and has been involved. I mean, it's been directly involved in Ukraine. This was one of the one of the problems because, uh, and I think one of the reasons maybe why Putin took the action as it seemed really a, quite suddenly without without a huge amount of warning that he saw that even if Ukraine wasn't about to be fast tracked into NATO the penetration of Ukraine by NATO, NATO officials in the defence ministry, arms supplies to Ukraine at NATO standards, training by British and American, uh, British and American trainers of Ukrainian troops to bring them up to NATO standard and to make Ukraine adhere to, to um, so that their, their, their troops could cooperate with the rest of NATO. Putin had this neat expression that it hardly mattered whether you were talking about Ukraine in NATO or NATO in Ukraine. Um, and I think he, he saw that as really something that had already happened. And that is one reason why he moved. And that this is not an isolated uh, argument. Uh, the University of Chicago's John Mearsheimer, regular guest on this program, Harvard's Steve Walt, among others, they have said that from Moscow's perspective, NATO expansion into Ukraine, that's seen as an existential threat. And they make the point, Mary, that when great powers face 
existential threats. You don't want to underestimate how ruthless they can be. That's clearly what's happening here. Mary, as always, it's great to have you on RN. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Mary Dejewski, she's a columnist with The Independent and a former correspondent in both Moscow and Washington. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and up next, how Southeast Asia views the Russian invasion and the increasingly close relations between Moscow and Beijing. Now for the view from Southeast Asia, and who better to address the geopolitical consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine than our next guest. Kishore Mabulbani is a former Singaporean ambassador to the United Nations, twice. He's author of many influential books, including Has China Won? and a book just out published by Springer called The Asian 21st Century. Kishore, it's a great pleasure to welcome you back to Between the Lines. Thank you for having me. Now, in recent years, Washington, as you well know, has set out to pivot to Asia to intensify its strategic and economic competition with a rising China, uh, primarily under Trump and then, of course, under Biden. So what's the significance of the US now placing so much importance to Eastern Europe in the face of Russian aggression? Well, a lot depends uh, on whether or not this Ukraine episode lasts a few weeks or a few few years, you know. And if it's a few weeks, then it's not going to change the American emphasis on focusing on China. But if for whatever reason the United States gets bogged down in the Ukraine issue, then, of course, uh, it will be a positive outcome for China and China can continue growing its economy while the United States is distracted. One thing seems clear that Europe has become much closer to the US in the face of Russian intransigence. To the extent that those trends continue, what would that mean for China? As I mentioned earlier, the, if the US shifts its focus away from China, that's a plus for China. But the big minus for China is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had an electrifying effect on the transatlantic alliance. And the West, which has basically sort of been drifting apart the two poles of United States and Europe, has finally become uh, much more united and probably more united than it's ever been since the end of the Cold War. So in that sense, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine by re-energizing the Western alliance has been a negative for China. But you talk about the pluses, and we'll get to the negatives in a moment. You've argued in your uh, past writings and indeed in your various media performances, including on this program, that the post-9-11 wars, the so-called forever wars, and most notably the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, they were a geopolitical gift to China because they allowed China five years to grow. So... What does that mean for China? Will that allow China even more years to grow if, it's, uh, if it remains distracted in Europe? 
Well, certainly, uh, the more the more that the U.S. remains distracted with Ukraine and in Europe, that is a plus for uh, China. But you know, it's important to also understand that we live in a deeply interconnected world, and the Chinese actually would also prefer to have some degree of global stability to grow their economy. So if this Ukraine crisis continues, there are sanctions on Russia, it affects global energy prices, the global economy slows down, that's also a negative for China. So, you know, in that sense, China is not necessarily happy that the Russians have invaded Ukraine. And another minus here, the strong US-European response to Russian aggression in the form of cooperated uh, crippling sanctions. I noticed, by the way, that Singapore, your country, unlike the rest of ASEAN, supports that tough line. But doesn't that strong US-European relationship and that response to Russia, doesn't that show that China would also meet very stiff resistance from the world if Beijing's leadership tries to expand its power across East Asia. And of course, I'm thinking about Taiwan. Kishore Mabobani. I have absolutely no doubt that the Chinese are watching very, very carefully. Number one, uh, how the Russians are progressing militarily in their invasion and occupation of Ukraine. And they're also watching what are the actions that the United States and the West have taken that have really damaged Russia? And here it's clear it's not the American aircraft carriers or the American strategic bombers uh, that are the American ICBMs that are damaging Russia. It's the use of the U.S. dollar mm -hmm, uh, that mm -hmm. damaged the Russian economy significantly. Uh, so as a result of that, I think the Chinese, I'm sure, must be working out how will the Chinese economy be impacted if the United States applies the same sanctions on China that it has applied to Russia. I'm sure they're studying it very, very carefully. Yeah, because the Chinese currency can't become a, a convertible international currency anytime soon. So that's the question here. I mean, won't the use of a greenback also hurt China? Should Beijing act aggressively in the South or East China Seas or the Taiwan Strait? Well, certainly, uh, as of now, the Chinese economy would be hit very badly uh, if the United States applies the same uh, dollar sanctions on China that it has on Russia. So you can therefore imagine that the Chinese must be working very hard to figure out how they can uh, reduce their dependence uh, on the US dollar. But you're also absolutely right. The renminbi cannot become a global reserve currency. It's not freely uh, convertible. And, and therefore the renminbi cannot replace uh, the US dollar. But nonetheless, I suspect that the Chinese must be working hard to look for alternative payments mechanisms whereby China can trade with most of the world without having to rely uh, on the uh, US dollar. And they haven't been succeeded in doing it yet, but you know they have already done, uh, they're experimenting with the digital UN and maybe they can use blockchain technology, AI, to create some kind of alternative payments mechanism. They'll be able to protect the Chinese economy from sanctions of the US dollar. 
My guest is the distinguished Singaporean intellectual, Kishore Mabobani. Now, Kishore, one consequence of NATO's strong opposition to Russia is that Moscow has moved even closer to Beijing. What do you make of the increasingly close relationships between these two great powers? This is what the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, calls an axis. Now, before you answer that, let's get your reaction to John Bolton, longtime Republican foreign policy strategist. He was on the program last week, Kishore, on what he calls the China-Russia entente. The, the irony here is China is and will be the senior partner. The reverse of the Cold War years, obviously, when the Soviet Union was the senior partner. But it is a threat, and it magnifies, each magnifies the power of the other. China in the Indo-Pacific, Russia in Europe, and both of them in the Middle East. That's President Trump's National Security Advisor, John Bolton, on Between the Lines last week. Kishore Mabobani, how worried should we be about what Morrison and Bolton call uh, a Russia-China axis or entente? Well, I mean, I would emphasize that it is not a natural alliance, Uh, the alliance between China and Russia. It's one that comes together conveniently for both sides, because both uh, China and Russia are under a lot of pressure from the United States, and therefore to fob off the pressure from the United States, they are coming to work together. But as you know, in my book, As China Won, uh, I point out that in the long run, the biggest uh, national security challenge to Russia is not going to come from Europe because there'll be no German tanks coming to invade Moscow again. Those days of European armies crossing borders is over. But at the same time, Russia, the, Russia's longest border that it has to protect is vis-a-vis China. And as you yourself said, uh, China has now become uh, much, much more powerful than Russia. In fact, the Chinese economy is now 10 to 12 times the size of the Russian economy, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's a very... Uh, different situation. So what you're seeing is a very temporary uh, partnership between Russia and China, which doesn't have the makings of a a long-term alliance. So I would not say that a new axis has been created. Okay. So just to clarify, this Russia-China alliance is not natural, But nevertheless, as a consequence of this crisis, Washington and Brussels are pushing Russia closer to China, but it's not a long-term relationship. That's important to note. And meanwhile, Kishore, where does India fit in here? It is a member of the Quad with the United States, Japan and Australia. Yet last month, Delhi abstained from a vote at the UN Security Council to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. India. And, and India also abstained in the UN General Assembly, by the way. Uh, so India, by the way, has got its own profound national security concerns, you know, that it has to weigh in. And if, it, if India looks at the record over the past 40, 50 years, the one power that actually has been most sensitive to India's security concerns uh, has been Moscow under the former Soviet Union or the current Russia. So most of India's uh, defense equipment still comes from uh, Russia and not from United States or anybody else. And equally importantly, 
if let's say uh, India has a dispute with its neighbor Pakistan and the UN Security Council is going to take measures that might damage the uh, Indian economy, then, then India needs one power to veto uh, the UN Security Council resolution. And the Indians have found that out of the five permanent members in the UN Security Council who have the veto power, namely United States, UK, France, China, and Russia, the power that has been the most reliable for India in terms of delivering a veto in the UN Security Council has been Moscow or Russia. So I think the Russians would be very, very careful not to alienate uh, Russia too much. So it has made life, in a sense, much more complicated uh, for the Quad. My guest is Kishore Mabobani, one of Singapore's leading intellectuals and a former diplomat and Mandarin. Kishore, the world admires Ukraine's courage in the face of Russian aggression. Ultimately, though, Ukraine must learn to live next door to Russia especially if Kiev falls under Moscow's control. So I suppose the question here is, how do you think the West should try to avoid worst case scenarios in Ukraine? Well, I think the, the, the best thing that the West can do is to listen to some great Western minds. And as you know, the greatest strategic thinker that the United States had during the Cold War was George Kennan. He warned about the expansion of NATO and certainly about expanding NATO into Ukraine. And then Henry Kissinger, uh, and as you know, uh, George Kennan was quoted extensively by Tom Friedman, one of his recent mm -hmm. columns, in a, in a recent, uh, in, a, sorry, in an article in the Washington Post in 2014, gave a, gave a brilliant solution for the Ukraine problem whereby he said that Ukraine should be, of course, be allowed to choose its own form of government. By the same time, Ukraine should not join NATO. I mean, that was categorical on the part of uh, Henry Kissinger. And I think Kissinger made the point too that Ukraine should be a buffer or a neutral state, a bit like Austria at the height of the Cold War. Exactly. And, and, and I agree with uh, Henry Kissinger. And of course, the, another uh, person who has actually, who, who I must say was very, very prescient and who anticipated this in the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, was John Mearsheimer. Uh, and in a speech he gave in 2015, he fully described why Ukraine is so important to Russia and why it was so unwise to try and push Ukraine into NATO. Well, of course, you and Mearsheimer, Keyshaw, have argued many times in the past, and this program has dedicated episodes to this very question, that one of the West's major strategic errors in the post-Cold War era was to further humiliate the already humiliated Russia. That's well known. But you see, the Russians here have strongly opposed NATO and EU expansion. But let me put this to you, many central and Eastern European nations, like most Ukrainians, by the way, or at least a majority of them, they want to be part of the West. What about their right to self-determination? Kishore Mabobani. Uh, well, that's a very good question. And the person who gave the best answer to this question was, again, our friend John Mearsheimer. He said, if the United States believes in self-determination, would it allow Cuba to station Russian missiles close to the United States. 
And, and John Mearsheimer has said categorically that if you look at the record of the 20th century, when any Latin American government wanted to move away from the United States and move closer to the then Soviet Union, as you know, the United States intervened and removed governments in Latin America. So, so in a sense, what John Mearsheimer is saying that if we believe that we should have the right to uh, have uh, control our security in our neighborhood, then we should also be sensitive in his, in his, in his words to Russians uh, uh, desire to have security in their neighborhood. So there are ways and means of finding compromises uh, instead of saying that, okay, categorically, Ukraine should just be free to join NATO because there is history, there is geography, and there is also diplomatic wisdom. And the diplomatic wisdom was the one that Mearsheimer conveyed when he said, and, and which actually Kissinger agreed with, and George Kennan agreed with, which is that Ukraine should not join NATO. So, in other words, there are no saints in geopolitical games. There is only tit for tat. <laughs> Keyshaw, thanks as always for being on the program. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's a, always a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's Keyshaw Mabobani, a veteran Singapore diplomat and a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. His new book is called The Asian 21st Century. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and up next, what does Russia's invasion of Ukraine mean for energy and climate? Well, for years, Western leaders have warned that the biggest threat to the world is climate change. Yet here comes Putin, armed with nuclear weapons, tanks and thousands of troops, threatening European peace and stability. Which, according to my next guest, raises the question, how can the West win a geopolitical conflict lasting years or decades with an economy powered intermittently by wind turbines and solar panels? Now, Russia is the world's third largest oil producer. That's after the US and Saudi Arabia. Russia is also the second largest gas producer after the US. And remember, Europe is heavily reliant on Russian fossil fuels. So what now? Rupert Darwall is a senior fellow at Real Clear Foundation, researching issues from international climate agreements to the integration of environmental, social and governance goals in corporate governance. Rupert, welcome back to ABC Radio. Great to be joining you, Tom. Now, take us back three decades to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russia ends up with the gas and a newly independent Ukraine, the pipeline and transit fees. This has been a source of frustration to the Kremlin. Tell us more. So in, in the 1980s, in the sort of dying decade of the Brezhnev era, um, Brezhnev put a massive great emphasis on exploiting um, the Soviet Union's gas reserves. And they were in Siberia. They were also in, in, in Ukraine. And 
it was Brezhnev's gas effort that actually kept the Soviet Union or the, uh, Russia and its and the former satellites going when the economy collapsed in the early 1990s. And the big problem was, as this as the USSR disintegrated, is that they had an integrated, unified gas sector. And when the, the Soviet Union split apart the bits of it were left in the constituent parts. And so broadly speaking, the Russian Federation had the gas reserves, but 80% of the of um, Russia's exports to Western Europe transited through Ukraine. So Russia was completely dependent on Ukraine transit, the, the pipeline going through Ukraine. And there's another point that the deal under the Soviet Union, when it was exporting gas to in, uh, West Germany and other Western European nations, was that the price in the Soviet Union would be kept artificially low and, and basically be financed off, off uh, cross-subsidized from exports. So Ukraine got two things. It got very, very subsidized gas from the Russian Federation and it collected transit fees. And this was a source of immense friction uh, with, with Russia. Okay, but if you fast forward to today, if Moscow controls Ukraine, will Putin have solved this Ukrainian transit problem? Well, one, one way that he was trying to solve it, and it's been a very long-term project, is building pipelines that bypass uh, Ukraine. So there's Nord Stream 1. Um, there, there was actually a pipe. There's a pipeline that goes through Belarus and Poland. There's Nord Stream 1, which um, goes goes underneath the, the Baltic Sea. And there's also one that goes down to Turkey. So there's been a long-term project, like very long-term project of massive infrastructure to bypass Ukraine. So you, you've seen a much, you've seen a falling proportion of of gas going to uh, European markets via, via Ukraine, but it's still been a uh, still been a source of friction because what the Ukrainians were also doing was they were basically off off taking uh, quite a lot of of gas for domestic consumption. They basically couldn't pay for it, and and so Gazprom and, and the Kremlin felt they were that that the Ukrainians were thieving, and also it was a big problem internally for for Ukraine because there was a lot of corruption around uh, uh, around these pipeline fees and the olig one oligarch controlling it and so forth, which really corrupted uh, Ukrainian politics uh, really until, until very recently. Okay, now all this comes as Germany and other European states are heavily dependent on Russia for fossil fuels, a dangerous vulnerability. And Putin obviously assumed that Europe's dependence on Russian energy would protect him. So Will the tough US-led sanctions, I mean, the tough Western response here, will that mean that Europe no longer relies on Russian gas and oil? Well, it's oil is less of a problem because oil is a global market, it's essentially fungible. So as we saw in the 1970s, when uh, the Gulf uh, producing states uh, imposed their oil embargo on the United States. It really didn't. It had a price effect, but it didn't have an effect on supplies because basically, if you if you don't supply one market, it, you supply another market, which frees up oil for that for 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 the country you're trying to embargo. But 
uh, gas is a very different uh, proposition, basically because you have to pipe gas, and if you don't pipe it, you have to you, you turn it into you have to liquefy it, which is incredibly it's expensive, and, and and then you ship it across, and there's a there's a big uh, cost to doing that. So basically, it, it, it creates a sort of two two tier market, if you like. So yes, the, the, the Europeans and particularly the Germans. Um, Italians too are very dependent on on gas, and so the argument Europeans are slightly are kidding themselves big time that oh um, renewables can take up the slack. But the reason there was a gas shortage through the autumn and this massive great gas spike in gas prices was that there was what uh, what the renewable crowd call a wind drought. Um, some 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 people even. Blame this on global warming, on climate change. That suddenly the wind died down, and so so there was much much less electricity being generated because of this global stilling, some of them call it. Right, so there's less wind, so you have to burn more Russian gas, and that that led to an acute uh, sh- shortage in the market, and you saw a huge, um, you saw a very very sharp increase in price. So it, it is delusory to delusory to to think that. Uh, Europeans can power themselves on, 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 on intermittent wind. Yeah, well, Europe is phasing out coal. And in the case of Germany and Belgium, they've prematurely closed their nuclear power plants. So I get back to this fundamental question. How will they power their economies if at this stage, as you say, you just made this point that wind and solar are not capable of filling the void? I mean, we'll, we'll, I mean, Biden's made this point. I mean, it's quite interesting. The Biden administration's punishing fossil fuel production in the United States by reducing the supply and increasing the cost of coal, oil and natural gas. But Biden's now saying that US natural gas exports might ride to the rescue of Europe. So what's going on here? Rupert Dowell. Yeah, it's very difficult. Uh, when you come... Tom, when you come to the politics of the Biden administration, it's really, really, really hard to understand understand what they're up to because, on the one hand, they are very they're trying to they're suppressing uh, domestic production. On the other hand, they're opening up the strategic oil reserve when, of course, your biggest strategic oil reserve is is the stuff you've got on the ground and you're able to get out quickly uh, by drilling and fracking. And there's not enough. Uh, there's not enough pipeline infrastructure, particularly to, to to New England. And as you know, as you know, the, the first thing that uh, the Biden administration did was can uh, Keystone XL, and they're, they're the the federal regulatory agency FERC is is doing everything it can to stop uh, development pipeline de- development. So it is completely the, the Biden administration policy is a complete mess. But it's very good of them to be sending um, boatloads of LNG to, to Europe. Will that fix the problem? Well, I haven't done the numbers, but I, th- I find it very, very doubtful whether the, the, Euro- the Europeans can subsist on shipments of LNG. It's a really big. It's a really big thing to do. You know what's really interesting here is also Germany. I mean, this is fascinating. We've got a new social democrat coalition government. It's promised to stockpile coal and gas reserves and build two new terminals to import LNG from nations other than Russia. This is Germany's foreign minister. This is Annalena Barbock. She's a Green former co-leader. And when she was asked if her party really would accept the extended use of coal, quote, yes. That is the price we'll pay. This is Germany, Rupert Dowell. Yeah, it's 
coal coal is uh germany's dirty secret actually because it's it's it it's face out. It was it was Merkel. Actually, you have to go back a bit further. It was the first Schroeder Red Green Coalition um, as part of the deal with the Greens. What the Greens got was a a phase out of nuclear power. Then Merkel uh, bravely for Bert Merkel decided to open that up and extend the. Um, the life of the nuclear power stations that were scheduled to close, and then there was the Fukushima accident. Within weeks, she was she was going back on that, and that is causing very very great difficulties uh, for German energy supplies. But yes, they will keep coal going. So even though they're promising to be, I think, entirely renewable by I think it's twenty thirty five, they're going to keep they're going to have to keep those coal fired power stations going. Okay, Rupert Darwall, he's author of The Age of Global Warming, A History. He's written extensively for The Spectator and The Telegraph in the UK and The Wall Street Journal and National Review in the US. Rupert, what does all this mean for the prospects of net zero emissions, which in Europe, um, you know, you made the point about Germany, I think it means cutting emissions significantly, like by half by the end of this decade. Now, President Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, he's warned in the last week or so that there, there will be, quote, massive emissions consequences from the war, which he also said would be a distraction from the work on climate change. Kerry also said, quote, he hopes Putin will help us stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. Now, is that even possible in the current security environment? Rupert Darwell. Well, uh, I don't think uh, John Kerry's really taken on board um, Russia's commitment in the uh, in its second second uh, generation's uh, nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement, which under that it, it is pledged to, to to emit no more than seventy uh, percent of its nineteen ninety level. Well, nineteen ninety was the level just before the entire collapse of the Soviet uh, economy, and so what you've got is a an artificially very very high baseline. Uh, for, for which they can actually they can actually grow their emissions um, and still not hit hit that seventy percent limit. So they're not reducing their emissions at all. What what they're able to do is they're actually able to increase their emissions by about thirty four percent. So it's absolute, you know, it, it's 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 really extraordinary that Kerry said. The other thing Kerry said in that extraordinary interview was that. Uh, that Russia is threatened by climate change, the you know the permafrost thawing and and so forth, and, and that Russians are already suffering from climate change. Well, if you look at what Russians have been saying right from the start of the global warming issue in the in the in the nineteen nineties, uh, they a senior Soviet scientist headed one of the IPCC working groups, and he said, you know, perhaps perhaps global warming beneficial, and and, and one of uh, Putin's advisors in two thousand five said anyone worried about climate change should come and live in Siberia. So their yeah. their mentality is completely different from what Kerry stupidly assumes it to be. Okay, but let's get back to your core argument here that Putin has blown up net zero and the green reset. Let me put to you the counter argument. This is that the Ukraine crisis actually emphasizes the need to not just reduce the need for Russian fossil fuel imports, but to accelerate the rollout of clean energy technologies. This is the new statesman, quote, net zero is the energy answer to Russian aggression. And here's unheard, quote, in the longer term, the environmental agenda is perfectly aligned with the security agenda. What's wrong with those arguments, Rupert Darwell? Because basically, uh, 
you can't keep you can't rely on wind and solar capacity to keep the lights on it is simple as simple as that there is no substitute for nuclear um, and really there's no sub you you really need you you also need fossil fuels in one form or another and the issue is not saying we cut out all fossil fuels but being able to not source it from from Russia that's the obvious answer so the greens and a, a lot of commentators are just are out with the fairies and thinking that you can you can do without uh, hydrocarbon energy you simply can't and we've been focused on the power sector when it comes to transportation um road and road and air there aren't there there aren't there aren't available substitutes this is this is fantasy land when people get when people uh, get into that uh, into that say basically we can do without uh, fossil fuels it's just not practical and we should stress that 80 percent of the world's energy does still come from fossil fuels so it's going to be a major effort in the middle of a war to start reducing those emissions dramatically when these countries as we say they've been heavily reliant on russian gas final question here is norway uh, i only found this out this week it's been a big supplier of gas to europe so can it ramp up to uh, bail out the europeans rupert well norway is a very very interesting case because it's new uh, socialist prime minister was interviewed for, by the Financial Times, and he gave a very robust response because, as you, you just Norway is the biggest oil and gas producer in, in Western Europe, and he said, "Well, you've got to have fossil fuels to for the energy to to have the green transition. How are you going to make all these wind turbines and so forth um, without fossil fuels? What people forget about." Um, intermittent uh, about wind and solar is they are very very materials intensive intensive making this making them needs lots and lots of energy rupert great to have you on abc radio again thank you sir that's rupert darwell from the real clear foundation and author of the age of global warming a history well that's it for the show for another week and if you'd like to hear past episodes including my exchange with evelyn go on last week's 50th anniversary of Nixon's overtures to communist China. Wasn't that great? Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.